lawyers cannot work anymore other than in this social app that is TechGC. Hey everyone, this is Chris Sands and you are listening to The Leading Edge, presented to you by TechGC. Today's episode is on diversity and inclusion, where I give some pushback to the common assumptions of diversity and inclusion. We look at the data on how diversity makes companies more productive, and we get more clarity on the D&I movement as a whole. Hope you like this episode, and I hope you like this new groovy intro. The topic of diversity and inclusion seems to be intensifying in all areas of our society. On university campuses, you see a rise in protests, as well as administrative pushes towards more diversity and inclusion initiatives. On social media, you'll see toxic debates over the issue, resulting in polarizing and hardline stances. And in the corporate world, you see an increasing rollout of diversity and inclusion programs. So what is diversity and inclusion? I personally am not convinced that we have a collective understanding on what DNI actually means. And as a topic that has a strong emotional element, I'm also not convinced people are feeling comfortable to question or mention anything negative about its implications. For this reason, I'm joined by Paolo Guadiano for a healthy back and forth on the topic. Paolo is the CEO of Illyria, president of Illyria Research, and executive director of quantitative studies of diversity and inclusion at the City College of New York. Paolo, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's great being here. Thanks for inviting me. So where to begin here? I think it would be first useful to touch on why diversity and inclusion has gained such prominence in recent years. Only a decade or two ago, this was not nearly such a focal point as it is now. Can you walk through the DNI movement from a historical perspective and give some insight into what's changed in the last 10 years? Historically, I think that what we're seeing today is a continuation of something that definitely started with civil rights in the sense that civil rights was it was the first recognition of laws were actually written in such a way as to disadvantage or provide favor to a particular group at the cost of another group. And really at the heart of some of the decisions related to the civil rights movements were the decisions that really it's unconstitutional to apply the Uris decisions that require segregation or that, you know, support segregation. And so from that point, uh, I think that there was a gradual shift in the business world. And I think that really started, and I forget the exact year, but it was sometimes in the late 70s or early 80s, there was a series of articles that came out in Harvard Business Review where people started to ask questions about, okay, great, we've now spent the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, where in principle, African-Americans are able to participate equally, but we're not really seeing much of a change and what needs to happen in order for corporations, on the one hand, to take advantage of this increased opportunity in the workforce, and on the other hand, to create better opportunities for these segments of the population. And then from there, the discourse has actually been there all along. But I agree with you that in the last maybe 10 years or so, there has been definitely an increase in the volume and an increase in the amount of conversations that have been had. And that has had both positive and negative implications and outcomes. And I think some of that is, it's a combination of factors. I think it's on the one hand, yes, some of the civil rights movements kind of becoming more mature from the point of view of understanding implications for labor force, et cetera. On the other hand, I think it's been the increasing awareness of globalization and the increasing awareness of a shortage in workplace in talent. So all of those converge to the necessity to understand how can we capitalize better on the talent that we bring into our organization and how can we not only attract more talent, but bring them into the company. So I think that the combination of those factors has really resulted in the really pretty astounding amount of buzz, if you want to call it that. But it's not just the buzz because there's actually been a tremendous amount of money that has been committed by 
corporations and universities and other entities to support diversity and inclusion. Okay, that's helpful. And so to get granular on the meaning of diversity, are we specifically talking about ethnic populations? There are certainly a lot of ways to see diversity in individuals, diversity of thought or ability. People can be short, tall, skinny, fat, extroverted, introverted. So what type of diversity are we talking about and who are we talking about including? That's also a really good question. And I would imagine that if you invited 10 people to your podcast, you would get 10 different answers. There is really, I think, a couple of different ways to think about it. And first of all, I'm going to come back in a moment to the difference between diversity and inclusion. And we tend to put those together as a dyad, but they really have, in my opinion, very, very different meanings. Diversity really, in its general form, it's not just about race. In fact, one of the interesting conversations that has been emerging in recent years is the fact that certain ethnic populations have pointed out that a lot of the results of civil rights and some of the laws that have passed have actually benefited white women more than they have benefited people of color, right? So even within that, there are some different ideas about what that means. But the way that I like to think about it, which I think I try very hard in my work to take things from a sort of a neutral position and try to get through all of the societal, emotional, this is the right thing to do implications, because some people believe those, some people don't. But I believe that if you get past that, and if you get past some of the traps that people set to make you fall on one side or the other, it really boils down to something relatively simple, which is that diversity is really about measuring people's characteristics, right? So it's about how many people of one kind of another kind. Now, you've identified a very important problem with diversity, which is how do you even define the categories? I mean, if you think about it, African-American is a label that, in fact, if you think about African, that usually refers to people that comes from sub-Sahara Africa, right? Well, globally, there is something like 1.1 billion of them. And if you check that box that says Asian, there is like 3 billion of them, right? You could be Indian, Bangladeshi, you can be Uzbek, you can be Chinese, and those are all Asian. So right there, the idea that we're forcing people into boxes is a little bit crazy. And then, of course, when you talk about cognitive diversity, when you talk about neurodiversity, when you talk about diversity of abilities, that was one of the things that I realized that there is something fundamentally misleading about focusing on diversity. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, because you need to counter that with the fact that there are people that clearly have been not just disenfranchised, but they've basically been exploited. They have been used. I mean, a lot of our country was built on the backs of slaves that were brought over from primarily from Africa, right? And we can't completely ignore that, right? So how do you reconcile that? Well, one of the ways that I like to think about it is think about your company as a portfolio of human beings, of people. And what I suggest to people is that I can find a way to make that portfolio operate more efficiently by being more diverse. Just like I can take a financial portfolio and diversify to get greater returns, or I can take a portfolio of marketing assets and diversify it to get better sales. So my goal is, how can I understand how the diversification of my staff will actually increase the performance of a company and ideally also make the people in the company more satisfied? And to me, this is where inclusion really becomes important. And the analogy that I love to give is the following. Suppose that you have a team of 10 people and this team is the perfect team, right? Each individual is working at their peak and as a team, they work perfectly together. And now suppose that you do something so that one of those people is unable to perform at their peak level of performance. What's going to happen to the company or to the team in this case as a whole? Well, clearly the performance is going to go down. Now you're going to do it to two people, right? And the performance is going to go down more. And now you start to get feedback effects where the other eight are picking up the slack, they get frustrated and it'll work as well. So what's the punchline of that? Well, the punchline is that if you're in an organization in which you do anything that makes people in your company perform less than optimally because of a personal trait, whether it's gender, race, 
nationality, accent, body weight, whatever, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. So if you flip that in a positive way, anything that you can do that makes people feel included, anything that can help to increase their satisfaction in the workplace about things that have nothing to do with their ability to do the work, but just with their ability to be there day to day is going to make the company perform better. So the way that I go talk to people is say, look, you're running an organization. Your human capital is by far the most expensive P&L item that you have. It's also the most valuable asset that you have. And it's potentially the most risky asset that you have in terms of lawsuits, et cetera. So why wouldn't you take the effort, make the effort to make sure that all of these people are feeling included and they can work very well? And that really has nothing to do with being black or white or Asian or tall or short, right? It's just about a mindset that we need to think about how to diversify human capital to maximize performance. When you start from it that way, it's obvious that being able to work with a diverse population is going to be beneficial and that making sure that they all feel welcome is beneficial. And I'm going to stop there. But, you know, then, of course, there's a question of, well, does it matter if the company is actually diverse or not diverse, right? Because all I'm saying is, if you have diversity, you want to make sure that you make them feel more included. And then there is a very separate question about the performance. Link. Right. So the performance element is definitely important, especially for corporations wanting to be successful. So let's go into how diversity drives performance. I can totally understand how differing perspectives could be highly beneficial to a working environment. But in a globalized society, just because you are black or white doesn't necessarily mean you are going to think like your black or white counterpart. Well-known and controversial VC investor Peter Thiel, he criticizes much of Silicon Valley for creating diversity in appearances, but not emphasizing in diversity of thought, where people look different, yes, but think very alike. So two things that you brought up. The first one is about the diversity of thought. I think that it is certainly the case you can have a black man who went to Yale and study in a certain department will have a lot more in common with a white man who went to Yale and studied in the same department than, let's say, a white man who grew up in the deep south and, you know, was a farmer, right? I mean, so there is definitely some issues about that. But I think that there's two things that I urge people to consider. The first one is the idea that you need diverse teams because they become more innovative. It's very limited because it's not really where diversity brings a lot of value. It's just one area. And it's also an area that is a little bit contested in the sense that, for example, studies have shown that teams that are more diverse tend to be better at coming up with ideas, but they also tend to be less efficient. It takes them longer to come up with their decisions. In fact, people have found that if you have teams that are diverse in terms of implementation, that sometimes can actually backfire. But that's also not always true. You know, these are, we're talking about statistical data where there is a slight advantage. But if you think about a whole organization, where does diversity actually benefit? And I'm talking about diversity, not just of thought, but of every kind possible. First, recruitment. If I have a million people out there that are potentially really, really strong candidates that if only I knew that could all work and contribute to my company. If I am only targeting a certain segment of the population because I don't know how to target that other segment, I've just shrunk my pool. And if I further shrink it because maybe my HR team is not used to reviewing resumes from people with ethnic names and they discard them offhand, out of hand, then I've shrunk it further. So every time that you do that, you're reducing your access to a talent pool. And it's a supply and demand, right? Especially as we're battling for talent. If you're cutting yourself out of some talent, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. And by the way, one of the things, and this is certainly true with law firms, I've written an article in Forbes in which I point out that the practice of recruiting only from Ivy League schools is just mathematically provable to be a really bad practice, okay? But so that's one example. So there is recruitment. Retention is more about making people feel welcome. Sales, you know, let's face it. If you want to design products, but only if you want to design products, if you want to sell a product into a particular segment of the population and you don't know how to reach them, that's going to hurt you on the sales side. 
customer service. Maybe you can hire an African-American product designer to design a great product, but then if all of your customer service people are white and somebody calls and they don't understand each other, they don't understand each other's needs, et cetera, that's going to create a problem. So the first thing that I want to point out is that there are many, many ways in which diversity can potentially create benefits for an organization. And I think that one of the reasons why we've not seen the needle moving is that people tend to be too focused on just bringing in more numbers without really thinking about all of the other pieces, without thinking about how do we make sure that they stick around? How do they make sure that they're contributing to the company? How do we make sure that they are participating in the right parts of the company? And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do is to take that whole complex set of factors and show people how they all tie together and why it's so important to look at diversity in a much broader scale than just, oh, it's because we get more innovation or it's because we get more sales. So you brought up recruitment which in my own experience as an executive recruiter is where I've seen the implications of DNI the strongest. I used to recruit for fintech startups and there have been times where a client would request of me to send them only female candidates, that any male candidates would not be considered. This was in some ways surprising, in other ways not, but it created a strange conflict in my head because on one end, it is fantastic for women to get access to great opportunities. But on the other end, there is a principle of non-discrimination, not to mention legal precedent, that should go against this action that this company was taking. Should we be countering past discrimination with new forms of discrimination? So I'm going to test your open-mindedness because I have to tell you some of the things that you're saying are so typical of people that have only a very limited understanding of what the problem is. And I would like to try to explain some of the reactions that I have to some of the things that you talked about. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I would point out is, yes, I'm going to agree that there are oftentimes people who take misguided actions, maybe for the right reasons, maybe not for the right reasons, but they come across as misguided. And this is one of the reasons why quotas are actually not even legal, et cetera. But I would like you to think about some of the things that you said. You made an interesting comment. You said, you know, is it reasonable to counter prior discrimination by what I think you said, even greater discrimination? I would like you to think about the fact that even today, let's take colleges, universities have still to this day, they have things like legacy programs, right? So what that means is that if your parents or family members went to a particular school, then it's much easier for you to get admitted. And that's true of Ivy League schools. Now, given that Ivy League schools have discriminated very, very, very clearly and blatantly for whatever reasons, for economic reasons, et cetera, what that does is that it basically creates an unfair advantage for white people that we tend to ignore because it's such a normal part of what we do, right? So there is that. Now, suppose that you are standing in line to buy tickets to a great concert and there is a limited number of tickets. And all of a sudden, a bunch of guys, college guys with college jackets cut in line in front of you and you're pissed off that they're bullies and they cut in front of you. Now somebody comes along and sees it and says, I want all you guys wearing your college jackets to get out of line because that was not fair what you did. And they start to say, oh, you're doing reverse discrimination. You're only kicking white guys in jackets out of the line, right? I mean, you have to come to the realization that the idea, if you have created a discrimination that is brought to inequality between races, then simply stopping to do that is inadequate. It's not fair. You can't do that, right? It's never going to work because you have structures that understandably, they have structures that continue to perpetuate their own mechanisms and their processes. And if you simply stop discriminating, 
that's not going to be sufficient. So what I want to make very clear is that in my opinion, and again, it doesn't impact me, right? I'm a white guy. It doesn't impact me. But if you discriminate for the purpose of bringing greater equality, then the only way that you're going to do that is that you have to enact what I would describe as anti-racist. It's not my own language, right? But you have to enact some practices that actually try to reduce those inequalities. So yes, it feels unfair as a white guy. But the point is, I believe firmly that by making companies more diverse, you can actually make the bigger. You can actually increase the value of what they're doing. And the only way that you can do that is by actively trying to encourage. It's not sufficient to just say, okay, we're going to open the door for you. Because the problem is that if the streets are completely clogged and you can't walk through the streets, you're never going to get through the door. So I hope that makes sense, right? And again, I look at it just from a purely from a business perspective. I have a lot of evidence that businesses that are more diverse will be more successful. And the problem is that you can't just wave your magic wand and say, oh, I'm going to be more diverse today. You have to take action to make sure that, you know, we want to educate a population. We want to make sure that the people that are educated are feeling welcome. There are a lot of Black people and African-Americans that do not go into certain careers, not because they're not qualified, but because they look at companies and they say, I will never succeed there. Nobody looks like me. There are no leaders like me. What do you do about that? Well, one way you do it is that you have actively promoting diversity by hiring people on the board or hiring people at the executive level who are diverse. And you're not going to do that by opening the doors equally, because let's face it, if there are 98% or 90% white executives, then if you just do it randomly, you're only going to continue to hire white executives, right? So you have to actively pursue those people if you believe that that's going to make your company better. And that's kind of the way that I come at it. Okay. Very interesting. I think this is an area in which you and I agree on where we want to go, which is a world with diverse and inclusive company cultures and more opportunities for those who were disenfranchised in the past. But it sounds like we differ on how we get there. I'm a big believer in establishing first principles as a way to solving big problems. And in this case, not discriminating on someone's race, gender, or anything else, that seems like one of those first principles that should be preserved. Because if it's not, well, that could compromise the meritocracy, which leads to great productivity and innovation. So here's something that I also would like people to think about. Meritocracy is a bit of an illusion because the problem is that we start with this assumption that we have a completely effective and accurate way of measuring the future potential of people, right? So we think that, oh, we can tell of these candidates which one is better than the other one. That presumes that there exists a vetting process for hiring people that can tell you exactly who is going to be succeeding. Now, here's the problem with that. If you look, there is like so much data on the fact that the way that we hire people, the way that we promote people, the way that we evaluate people is so profoundly flawed that the idea of a meritocracy, quite frankly, is grounded on just fluff. So in other words, there is absolutely no way, by the way, I have data to back this up, right? There are data that have been like decade-long studies that show that, for example, the correlation between GPA and performance on the job is virtually non-existent. There are areas, there was a phenomenal study about a year ago that looked at the historical performance of CEOs and showed that basically just because you've been a successful CEO in one company has absolutely no impact on your ability to be a successful successful CEO in a future company. So we continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we're able to make unbiased decisions about who is better in a meritocracy. But the problem is that very much of the meritocracy is based on subjective decisions. Like, 
hey, you went to the same school that I went to. You have an experience similar to mine. I've been successful. Therefore, I believe that you're going to be successful. And as long as we have those kinds of very qualitative ways of defining meritocracy, we have to acknowledge that we're just making stuff up and we're calling meritocracy, but it really isn't. It's just a matter of making it more homogeneous. Yeah, I agree that meritocracy is a pretty bad system. I would just argue that like democracy, it's just vastly better than the alternative. Shifting gears, though, I thought it would be useful to discuss unconscious bias because this is something we hear a lot about. And I've caught myself being guilty of this. When I first started this podcast, for example, most of my guests were men. Until someone called me out on it, I didn't realize that my immediate action was to veer towards my own little bro club. If we increasingly become more aware of these biases, is that a major move towards progress? As human beings, the only way we can function is through unconscious biases, because an unconscious bias is a reflection of the fact that we put things into buckets. So I can see that anything with four legs and a back is a chair, and I can see that anybody that looks like you is a human being. The problem is not the unconscious biases. And the problem is not even that people do bad things as a result of the unconscious biases. The problem is that when organizations, whether they're companies or legal systems, when they allow those unconscious biases to impact large segments of the population and to perpetuate that, that's where the problems arise. That's when the unconscious biases at the individual level manifest themselves as big racial disparities in society. So we don't need to just make people more aware of their unconscious biases, we need to examine all of these systems that we work within to figure out what are the policies, what are the measures, what are the systems that are in place that are allowing these unconscious biases to lead to one group being greatly advantaged over another. And I believe that right now we're not doing that very well. So to conclude, I'd like to get clear on the end goals of the DNI movement. Are we unified in how we're measuring success? So that's an awesome question. I'm going to make a statement that, that I realize some of my own colleagues in the DNI space may not agree with, but the idea of targeting a particular representation level is misguided. And why is it misguided? It's because, well, to me, it's like saying, oh, this company did a beautiful commercial, so I'm going to use exactly the same commercial for my product, in my market at every season, right? That's ridiculous. Like nobody would do that. So why should we think that having exactly the same representation as the nation is the right thing to do? Should every company be the same? So to me, the value of representation is simply to point out that there is something wrong with the system. But I don't think that our goal should be that, right? Now, I think that it's admirable, and I think that some people have successfully done that. There are companies, I know there is a company called Sodexo, I think that they've been held up as kind of a beacon of being able to increase diversity dramatically. A company called Atlassian, it's a kind of a tech company, and they have done a great job of increasing the level of diversity. But ultimately, this goes back to something that I began with, which is that to me, you need to think about inclusion side by side with diversity. You need to think about how can we create an environment in which people will be more likely to feel included? Because if you do that, you will attract more diverse people to your company. And if you do that, that will create more of a desire for people from certain segments to get the education that they need to go into those fields, right? So there is this whole chain reaction. And to me, ultimately says, if we could make our workplaces more inclusive, then that would increase the diversity that is already there. It would allow companies to tap into a more diverse space of talent. And it would also encourage our economy and our society to make sure that people have equal opportunities. So that's really kind of my pipe dream. It's not about hitting numbers. It's about changing the way that people think about diversity and inclusion. And one of my hopes is that 20 years from now, people will not even ask, is diversity a good thing? Diversity will be a given and people will focus more on how can we make our diverse workforces more efficient and more effective. And that does it for this episode of The Leading Edge. I want to thank Paulo for the open and honest conversation. For all upcoming episodes, you can subscribe to The Leading Edge by TechGC on your favorite podcast app. 
And you can also get updates through the TechGC Twitter at TechGC underscore CEO or through my Twitter at The Leading Chris. Once again, I'm Chris Sands and thanks for listening.